Ukraine Calling. Hello, you're listening to uh, Ukraine Calling, the English language podcast from Gromadsky Radio in Kiev. I'm Andrei Kulikov, and my today's interlocutor is Dr. Chan Kasapoglu. He's a senior fellow at Hudson Institute and the director of the research program at the Turkish think tank EDAM Turkey. Uh, my first question to you, Dr. Kasapoglu, is, uh, well, uh, Turkey has always been a center of gravitation for many Turkic states and peoples, nations. And of late, I think that uh, this trend has been revived because for some time it has been on, on the uh, downside of the events. Uh, what is your take on why this is happening? And what's the role in this of the success of Azerbaijan in its war with Armenia? Uh, well, that, that's uh, that's a great question, and I think that pertains to many geopolitical trends. It is it is complex, so it is not easy for the Occam's razor. Uh, but we should also avoid being deterministic about that. Very briefly, we should focus on each and every trend that brought about that result. The first one is, of course, the power vacuum, because, you know, the history says the Soviet Union collapsed three decades ago uh, for about. Uh, but geopolitically, geopolitics do not always go hand in hand with, uh, with history. I think the Soviet Union is now collapsing. And we are seeing the manifestations of the Soviet collapse, for instance, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right now, uh, the armed forces of the Russian Federation could not pull off, could not achieve a decisive victory over, over one and a half year. This is going to be the second winter of the war, and we are seeing that the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people are having a, a, a will, a strong will to resist the invasion. So that's one part. Can you imagine that? 20 years ago, the Russian military, the Russian war machine standing in Ukraine. The Ukrainian armed forces is right now in the south is on counteroffensive and the Russian military is, is in the defensive position. Uh, so that's that's one part of the story. But we are seeing the decline of the Russian power and the power vacuum coming after that, also in the Caucasus, in Central Asia. And Turkey is the natural candidate to fill that to fill that vacuum. So that's one geopolitical going zoom out to zoom in at the very highest level. I think this, this is because of the collapse, the real collapse of the Soviet Union and Turkey finding itself more freedom of space, if you like, in the, in the, uh, in the geography that it has national rules in. The second uh, reason and the trend to monitor is the boost in the Turkish defense sector, what we call in very military terms, defense technological and industrial base, DTIB. Like for the entire Cold War, Turkey was an important military power within the NATO alliance. It tied down more than 22 Soviet Red Army divisions. And had Turkey not been a NATO member, the correlation of forces, again, in, in military terminology, in the Eastern European plane uh, between the Warsaw Pact and NATO forces would have been quite different. And with that correlation of that hypothetical correlation of forces, history could have played uh, differently. But although Turkey was an important 
military power within the NATO alliance. It was a net arms importer. So right now, Turkey is a, an arms exporter nation. It is exporting arms to NATO countries like Poland, uh, also Turkic states uh, like Azerbaijan. But it is not only a business as usual arms exporter state. Uh, it is, if you like, surfing on the waves of 21st century. Look at the game-changer weapon systems of the Turkish defense technological and industrial base. Robotic solutions, autonomous solutions, smart solutions. And it is going cumulatively and it is it is growing exponentially for, for military for people in your audience who have familiarity with military affairs. Right now we are talking about Turkish drones releasing loitering munitions, so strategic drones releasing kamikaze drones. And the, both the kamikaze drone and the strategic drone, they enjoy uh, high-end sensor systems. So this is important. And what changed the entire calculus in the Second Karabakh War and, and the recent uh, clashes were actually Azerbaijan uh, procured drones both from Turkey and, and from Israel, loitering munitions from Israel, conventional drones from from Turkey, were, the game changer was those, those new systems that belong to the 21st century. And don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean that 20th century weaponry is useless right now, but these, these robotic systems are boosters. So, artillery system with drone spotting and drone target acquisition and drone intelligence screen is a different beast than a conventional artillery. So we, we, we saw a boost in that. But not only that, Turkey is not only cap building capacity, Turkey is building the future. Because Azerbaijan, for instance, is not an off-the-shelf buyer of Turkish drones. Neither is Kazakhstan, for instance. Turkey is granting co-production rights and technology transfer to those nations. But Ukraine is one of those you know, uh, nations in the post-Soviet space that Turkey is not only giving fish, but they are fishing together. And they are like learning how to fish together. And they are joining their forces in defense technological and industrial base. So it is multiplying itself and copying its DNA in, in different parts of the world. So this is the second trend. I think the third and the last trend here is the Turkish foreign policy. And this is the tricky part. You know, from a very myopic lens, you could see it, it as a drift from Turkey's traditional Cold War commitments. But if you look at the statistics of NATO operations, Turkey is one of the most energetic members of NATO. Turkey is nearly in every single important NATO operation. Okay? But again, if you just step one, if, if you just move one step closer, uh, one step farther away, and look, the NATO alliance, there are two actors in the NATO alliance who are who have strategic autonomy in their agenda. One is talking the talk, and the, another one is walking the walk. France is talking the talk. France seems to build strategic autonomy, as they call it, but they couldn't move one inch further in terms of uh, expanding their marginal money and influence on. Turkey is yet another NATO member that is trying to build strategic autonomy, which means more freedom of space in the contemporary international affairs, and it is walking the walk. Turkey tipped the, the, the military balance in Libya, the military balance in, in Karabakh. Karabakh was a frozen conflict that the Russians were benefiting from. 
Uh, Turkey is an important actor in Syria. Uh, Turkey is an important actor in Iraq. And the, 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 the tricky part, yet another tricky part in that strategic autonomy building is that Turkey is not always able to architect the design that it wants, but it has one ability. It can disrupt each and every architecture that it doesn't like. So maybe Turkey cannot design everything in Syria. Turkey cannot design everything in Libya. Turkey cannot design anything and everything in, in the North Caucasus. But Turkey can disrupt any foreign design that is in contradiction with its strategic interests. So this is also important. It can be a game breaker if it, if it wants to. So all these factors coming together, I think, is the new political outlook that you have uh, rightly depicted in the in the Turkic axis, if you like, uh, which uh, which was uh, Soviet space once upon a time. In this respect, Dr. Kasapoglu, how important in formulating an effect in the Turkish foreign policy is its long-standing rivalry with Iran? That's yet another great question, and thank you for asking that, because it is not we are not seeing that kind of nuance catching in foreign observation of Turkish foreign policy. Like seeing Turkish-Iranian rivalry at the first glance is not that easy. But looking at the history, uh, the imperial times, the Ottoman times, Iran was one of the main geopolitical combatants uh, or the main geopolitical rivals of the empire. And looking at today, uh, I'm going to list you uh, in a nutshell uh, a, a quick uh, a quick seconds of flashpoints and tell me only one that Iran and Turkey are not in rivalry. Syria, for instance. One dispatch, Iran dispatched the Lebanese Hezbollah, the Fatimi Yun and Zainabi Yun Brigade all the way from Afghanistan and Pakistan in support of the Syrian Arab army and the Hafez al-Assad remnant path regime of Syria. And Turkey, uh, Turkey was on the complete opposite camp and still in the complete opposite camp of the, of the Syrian conundrum. Look at Iraq, for instance, which actors and which agendas uh, that they are pursuing. Look at the Caucasus, the Azerbaijani-Armenian uh, showdown in the Caucasus, and Iran is natural and longtime ally of Armenia, uh, which holds uh, three Russian bases, which is like a garrison state of, of, of the Russian uh, And Turkey is taking side with, uh, with Azerbaijan, an ally of Israel, uh, a nation that thrives to be at NATO standards in its military uh, prowess. Uh, we can, you know, give other examples, uh, but I think apart from only the geopolitical competition, look at what's happening in, in Iran, okay? Like women crying for freedom, women crying for uh living in 21st century with all the civil rights that their uh, their counterparts in other nations are craving for. I think there are two models also competing uh, within the Muslim, uh, Muslim majority population countries. Turkey model, Turkey has a conservative government and a conservative president, like President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and a secular constitution. Uh, and Turkey is showing that the conservative government and conservative president and the secular constitution is actually working. There is uh, constitutional freedom in women's rights, in women's dressing, outfit, clothing, in everything. Turkey is a European Union uh, full membership candidate, although we have huge 
huge problems that candidate status has never changed. Turkey is one of the longest standing members of the NATO alliance. And I think, like, if you like, we can discuss on that. Although liberals in Turkey wouldn't like what I said, I think Turkey's real Western identity, the real anchor, lies in its NATO membership, not European Union candidate status. Uh, I think NATO membership defines Turkey's Western identity, and this is the desired end state for uh, for Turkey's Western uh, Western ties. Uh, liberal economy uh, with deep-rooted capitalism. Turkey is a trading nation. It is not a hydrocarbon nation. Turkey is a trading state, G20 member, one of the most dynamic economies of the world. We have a lot of startups, especially high-tech startups right now. Robotic sector is on the rise in, 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 in Turkey. And we are seeing that the despite all the problems and everything, the Turkish project uh, is successful. On the other hand, you have Iran, uh, a, a regime that cracks down on its own population who simply wants to dress as they like. Uh, a regime that survives by exporting instability and terrorism elsewhere for decades. Iran was one of the arch supporters of the PKK terrorism in Turkey. Uh, a regime whose friends are North Korea, Russian Federation, countries like that. Uh, and then there is Turkey who is having a seat in the North Atlantic Council. I think these two models bordering each other uh, and addressing to the, the broader Islamic world are in natural com competition, just like the uh, just like imperial times with different dynamics. And I think in, in that showdown, very objectively, it is really hard when you are a think tanker, when you are a strategic analyst and a military expert, and you are commenting on Turkey. In my professional Hudson Institute publications, for instance, I stay away from commenting on Turkey, just like the medical analogy that surgeons do not operate their relatives and their families. Uh, not because I'm not objective, but I don't want to be portrayed like that. What I'm saying, I would say the same if I were Italian, French, uh, or British. With Despite all the problems and everything, the model, the constitutional model that Turkey is portraying represents the future. And the constitutional model that Iran is portraying has no chance in competing with that because of the scientific roots and because of the social contract in the Rousseauite terms, the social contract that, that Turkey could offer, be it religious clothing or be it another fashion that ladies would want to follow, uh, it is not even a daily subject in Turkey. We have long passed that. There were, there were indeed like you know, issues to be addressed in the past. But social contract-wise, right now Turkey is looking at the future and a, a regime that is uh, that is plagued by the memory of Mahsa Emini, and I think this this belongs to another century, not this one. Ukraine calling. Dr. Chan Kasapoglu, a senior fellow at Hudson Institute and the director of the research program at the Turkish think tank Edam, is our interviewee in Ukraine calling tonight. And my next question is, um, for quite some years, for many, many Ukrainians, Turkey was a desired place to go and have a 
rest in the summer to buy some stuff and they didn't think or uh, we didn't think about Turkey as something some country that would uh, influence to a great extent what is happening now in Ukraine. We are aware of the arms that we get from Turkey. We are aware of the role that Turkey plays in the so-called Grain Corridor. And we are aware of the efforts that Turkey, in the person of its president, applies to a possible, to, to looking for peaceful settlement of the Russia-Ukrainian conflict. Many people may regard this skeptically. Other people are very enthusiastic about this. What's your opinion on if a peaceful settlement is available at all at this stage and what role Turkey can play in this? In addition, well, all, to, in addition to what it is already doing. Let's try to understand Turkey's position. Turkey's position is not a neutral position. Neutral states do not, let alone selling arms, do not donate arms to the Ukrainian military. So Turkey is not only selling arms, Turkey is crowdfunding and donating crowdfunded arms to Ukraine without even uh, receiving the crowdfunded amount. Uh, the Baikar company rejected that. They say like this nation is fighting for its freedom and we are not we are not taking this crowdfunded money. And they did something really chivalric. They said, like, give this money for rebuilding Ukraine. Uh, allocate this money for those people who are suffering from the uh, from the Russian invasion. Uh, I'm not saying this to praise the, the company. I have no, you know, financial cooperation with the company, even though I should say that I deeply respect what they did. Uh, this manifests a stance. This manifests a stance of three things. First, why Turkey wants, at a time when it is it is supplying Ukraine with game-changer weapon systems, and by game-changer weapon systems, I mean Bayraktar TB2 has a relatively lower share of operational tempo in the overall Ukrainian combat operations. But recalling back the very beginning of the Russian invasion, you were, we all witnessed that. And like when listening to this podcast, I don't know if it, is, it will be a podcast or people going to actually see us, but you know they're going to listen to us. Definitely go and Google articles at the very outset of this conflict saying that Ukraine has no chance. There were even articles saying that Western arms will not make a change in Ukraine. Okay? And before that, there were articles assuring the entire Euro-Atlantic strategic community that the Russian military will not invade Ukraine. Those articles are the emblematic manifestations of shame, and they're going to stay like carved in stone, carved in digital stone. They're going to stay on the internet just like that. The articles that were trying to convince the Western leadership that the Russian military will not invade, and then articles saying that you know Western arms would not do anything to the Ukrainian military, so do not just send those people in arms. Okay? That was the atmosphere. There was no military assistance programs. There was no Leopard 2 tanks. There was no Patriot, no Atakemes. There was no HIMARS. Uh, there was no large-scale uh, ammunition uh, flow into Ukraine. And 
when the Russian military started rolling its tanks into Ukraine in a multi-front war, Turkish TB2s were in the Ukrainian skies. And there is a nuance as a military analyst, I, I have to admit, that Turkey does not certify foreign munitions to its combat drones, which means that once you buy Turkish combat drones, it doesn't automatically equip them with warfighting capability. Ukraine never faced a shortage of Turkey-made smart munitions for the TB2 drones. And even before the war, Ukraine used those drones in the Eastern counterterrorism operations against the Russian-backed separatist forces. So there was no geographic limitation or combat road limitation when Turkey sold those drones to Ukraine. It was like laissez-faire, laissez-passe. It was like use them as you like within the legitimate uh, warfighting uh, legal uh, basis and terms uh, to defend uh, your homeland. So that that at the very outset of this conflict was a game changer. Plus, Bayraktar TB2 is a very high-end system, and it is way more superior than the, uh, the, the Russian drones. This is why it also became an instrument of psychological warfare and morale boost to the Ukrainian military. Why do you think the Ukrainians are singing songs after Bayraktar 2? Because at the outset of the war, name three or four weapon systems that the Ukrainians were superior to the Russians. Okay? And TB2 is a typical 21st century weapon system. Uh, so that, that, that played a huge role. So the, all this prelude is to tell the Ukrainian audience, plus there is more, there is the Kirpi Hedgehog, MRAPs, mine-resistant, ambush-protected uh, warfighting vehicles, Probably Akunji drones are on its way. It is the you know TB2 on steroids with uh, with many mission portfolio broadening. Uh, but all this prelude is to explain the Ukrainian audience that Turkish role is not neutral at all. It is it is pro-Ukrainian. It is pro-Ukrainian with the nuance that Turkey wants that war comes to an end. And again, like we have to highlight yet another nuance here. Turkey wants this war come to an end as soon as possible with non-negotiable territorial integrity of Ukraine, including the Crimean Peninsula. And this sensibility is not a new sensibility. Since 2014, go back on the Twitter and look at the Turkish Foreign Office, the Turkish ministries, notes about Crimea. Turkey has never, ever become even an inch close to even de facto, like turning a blind eye to uh, to recognize that feta company. The Turkish position within NATO as to Crimea was one of the firmest positions. You know, Crimea is a part of Ukraine and Crimea will stay as such. And this is really important among all NATO allies because of the indigenous population of Crimea, Crimean Tatars, that Turkey holds uh, kinship uh, relations with the same linguistics, uh, same culture, same background, uh, same cultural heritage, uh, uh, more and more. So Turkey having that firm state stance, that sensibility about Ukrainian territorial integrity, and taking a pro-Ukraine uh, policy in in uh, arming the Ukrainian military and the, the company, uh, the company Baikar company on CNN broadcast when the broadcaster, uh, the anchor woman asked, like, would you sell the same drones? Uh, to the Russian Federation, they said no, openly. 
No. So it is not, you know, we're going to sell arms to both sides of the conflict. Ukraine gets Turkish arms. Russia doesn't get Turkish arms. It is that that firm uh, pro-Ukraine position. But Turkey wants that war comes to an end. Why? Because of our first topic that we were talking. Turkey is a trading state. Turkey wants to do business. It is not Saudi Arabia. It is not the Russian Federation. It is not Algeria. Its economy does not run on hydrocarbons. Turkey's economy, like a shark, the shark lives as long as it swims. Turkish economy lives as long as it trades. Turkey is a trading nation. It has to trade. It has certain trade interests with Russia. It has certain trade interests with uh, with Ukraine. Uh, and this sanctions and disrupted economy and nosediving economic conditions is not convenient for the geopolitical outlook and geoeconomic outlook of, of Turkey. That's the first reason. The second reason is this war comes with a huge spillover burden. And that spillover burden we saw in the naval mines in the Black Sea, for instance, that spillover burden is mounting in the Black Sea, naturally. Okay? Uh, the Turkish, one of the main tenets of Turkish foreign policy is based on calm and peace in the Black Sea. So a conflict that has a huge potential of poisoning the Black Sea is inherently contradicting with the geopolitical worldview uh, when you stand in Ankara, as to, especially as to Black Sea. Dr. Katsapoulou, thank you for this very realistic analysis. I think it is very clear and up to date. You may laugh off my uh, last question. Uh, which you may think is very far-fetched. Anyway, I would ask you to answer rather briefly. But the Russians are now openly talking about restoring their empire. If this was considered to be something of indecency even 10 or 20 years ago, now more and more often we hear about the empire that needs to be restored. Turkey used to be one of the greatest empires on earth and it spanned countries in three continents. Is there at least some nostalgia and some plans among some people in Turkey to try to restore the Ottoman Empire? I would never laugh at those questions because I'm a think tanker and my job is to think the unthinkable and talk about all these, you know, probabilities, calculations. Uh, nostalgia in poetry, when reading a novel, you know, can ring a romantic bell and it can be, you know, just joy for a couple of hours over drinks. Uh, but it doesn't mix well with, with the realistic world or political military affairs. So there is a 70-year-old KGB officer sitting in the Kremlin, and he, whose last post was the KGB liaison office in East Germany, Dresden. Uh, that career creates, and that career compared, uh, combined with that, that generation, uh, brings about inevitably a worldview. A worldview that you can hardly run against the realities of 21st century. Uh, 
What do I mean by the realities of 21st century? I'm not making a moral judgment here. My job is not for moral judgment. This is for political activists. And I'm the being a think tanker. I am the on I am the ontological antithesis of being a political activist. My 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 ABC looking at world affairs is a very cold blood realism and real politics. So what do I mean by that? It means the precedent that the Russian armed forces set in Syria was not the right precedent to judge operational probabilities in Ukraine because Ukraine has air defenses. In Syria, uh, the, the, the target set did not have air defenses apart from some man-pad systems, man-portable air defenses. Uh, in Syria, the land component of the Russian, the Russian intervention never came from the Russian principle. It was enabled by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards by harvesting paramilitary formations all the way from Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Lebanon, and Iraq, and the Syrian Arab army, which was an historical ally during the Hafez al-Assad times of the Soviet Union. So they were, you know, they were they knew how to operate alongside the, the Soviet-Russian combat formations. The Russians, according to Russian writings and what we saw by open source intelligence, they dispatched a very limited air contingent in Syria. And the entire operation was designed to be the very opposite of the quagmire in Afghanistan that once the Soviet Red Army was swamped in. Okay? If you take this precedent and hope that this very precedent and the, the image of the Russian military will work exactly against one of the largest countries of Europe, okay, Ukraine, against the Ukrainian territorial defense forces and the Ukrainian armed forces that can together generate a few hundred thousands of war fighting prowess okay, in the Ukrainian soil. Looking at the differences between Syria and Ukraine professionally, as a military analyst, you can easily grasp that there is little, if any, resemblance between the two battlefields. It takes a romantic nostalgia and a, an analytical obsession, if you like, of restoring the Soviet empire which is not secret, by the way. Go to the website. I don't know if, if in Ukraine you can easily enter the website of the Kremlin, but go to kremlin.ru, and there is the post of Vladimir Putin's article there on the historical unity of the Ukrainians and the Russians. And that article defines, you know, Belarus, the Russian Federation, and Ukraine being one single political entity. Now, I'm in Kiev right now. I spend a field tour in Ukraine, different parts and a conference here. Uh, I know Russia. I know the that part of the world. And this is my that first very long time in Ukraine with the field uh, with the field study and everything. I can tell that like today there is no unity very easily. It is not because of the political differences, enmity or hatred or something like that. No. The Ukrainian people have a different relationship with their government. Okay, it is more of a taxpayer, voter, and service provider relationship in the Western standards. Okay, if they don't like the government, they change it by the ballot box. Okay, they are aware that they are taxpayers, and this is like a different economy theory, different mindset. 
and they don't want to be ruled by the glorious leaders or a cult of you know ex intelligence officers coming from the KGB ranks so on so on so 21st century is more than linguistics 21st century is more than you know bloodlines 21st century and and political systems i'm going to refer to 2000 i think 17 if i'm not mistaken uh world economic forum speech of yoval noah harari regimes are information processing systems okay the ukrainian society has a very different information processing reflex and pattern compared to the russian society and i'm not using that even for looking down on anybody or, or any nation it is just different it is just different the political ideals are different political design is different request from society is different the social contract is different even digitalization is different okay? uh, for instance like on this podcast or youtube upload whatever it is you can easily you are based in in ukraine right now right you can easily criticize the zelensky government and next day you will not lose your job or you will not be in prison okay so this it and you want to live like that and president zelensky wants you to live like that and he wants to live like that this this is way bigger than the 20th century imperial dreams this is a new information processing environment and you know I don't know about the historical unit. I'm not a historian, and I don't pretend to be one. And I'm a think tank. I'm an intelligence analyst in open source realm of information science. And I can say that, you know, a, a, a journalist criticizing the Zelensky government and the next day going to his job and being 100% sure about his safety, security, and bank accounts, and a journalist in the Russian Federation, you know, saying an iota of critical work about about the, the 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 Kremlin, you know, these are two different worlds. I don't know the historical unit, but today I see no unit between those two information processing systems. So the imp, imp, imperial nostalgia could be romantic, but you cannot base the the contemporary political military affairs on that. Contemporary political military affairs can only be based on real politics, and real politics, you know, is 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 hugely different. Now. When it comes to Turkey, I can say that Turkey is the, when it comes to, you know, realism and the real political understanding, it is the antithesis of, of what Russia did. Look at Turkey's wars and look at Turkey's military interventions, okay? Libya, for instance, no boots on the ground, robotic systems, uh, capacity building of the UN-recognized Tripoli government, okay? Having full backing of the UN recognition. Uh, no Turkish large combat formations, no large-scale amphibious operations in Libya. Very realistic, very pinpoint, okay? Uh, and with very clearly defined uh, political framework for that. Look at the Syrian operations, for instance. Have you ever witnessed a quagmire just like that, okay? Open-ended operations, no. very clear political goals. No ISIS, Daesh terrorist stronghold, no PKK, YPG terrorist stronghold. This is the, the very clearly defined framework, okay? The operation is designed by superior technology. Uh, comparing Russian and Turkish operations, in Turkish operations, you do not say, I don't mean majority, I mean like all. There is no 
unguided munitions in the Soviet in the Turkish operations. There is no Soviet relics like T-55 tanks, like T-64 tanks okay, in Turkish operations. There are tens of Turkish think tanks writing about the operations. Some having some critical points, you know, people are discussing in a, in a, in a, in a broad sense. I wrote extensively about that. Uh, the goals are really, de- really well defined, okay? And there is no article coming from any Turkish official like the, the article on the Kremlin website, the, the historical unity article. So look at that, that, for instance. Very sober, very clear-minded. Look at the Turkish national security calculus, the references and everything, always emphasizing the NATO identity, always cre- trying to create, but I am not trying to, you know, I'm, what I'm trying to envisage here is not being a mouthpiece analyst. I'm, I'm not, you know, doing the bidding of the incumbent sitting Turkish government saying that they did everything, find everything. But there is a clear distinction uh, between the incumbent sitting Turkish government and Putin's uh, adventurism in the post-Soviet space that caused a tragedy uh, for millions of people. Uh, with all the things they do right and wrong, the sitting Turkish officials are living in the in the 21st century and they are living in and they are they are making their decisions in a in a paradigm that is shaped by real politics, the realities, okay, and the strategic tenets. Whereas in Russia we see the restoration of the Soviet Union, which is which itself was bankrupt and collapsed because the project failed. Okay? When it comes to the Ottoman nostalgia and Ottoman nostalgia in Turkey, I'm going to be very straightforward with you. Every single Turk would have a huge respect to the Ottoman Empire out of legacy, just like we would have a huge respect to the founder of the Republic of Ataturk. And also the Turkish history didn't start with the Ottoman Empire all the way back from the Seljuk Turks, pre-Islamic times, you know, the 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 the, the Asian, uh, Central Asian Turkic empires, you know, we would all be proud of that history and that legacy and that heritage, okay? But we will not shape our foreign policy and security policy uh, around that historical nostalgia, you know, uh, these glorious days uh, are part of our heritage. We are proud of that. It is part of our national identity, definitely. But we live in the 21st century with the, all the security arrangements stemming from Turkish NATO membership, with the delicate regional balances around Turkey, in the Middle East, in the former Soviet space, in the Balkans. And knowing that Turkey, a NATO nation, bordering Iran, Iraq, Syria, the Middle East, the Caucasus. It is surrounded by different conflict zones, mushrooming, you know, clashes around Turkey, like the Russo-Ukrainian war, like the the, 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 the first, the second, and now the third or 2.5th uh, Karabakh war, uh, the, the security situation in Syria, the security situation in, in, in Iraq, a, a really ambitious and aggressive Iran, the Eastern Mediterranean, you know, being surrounded by that kind of delicate security environment, there is no room for even one second of losing, losing the sense of realpolitik. 
and the, Tur- the, the sitting incumbent Turkish government, if there is one thing that I would praise about their uh, security and foreign policy, is never losing that attachment uh, to the real, to the understanding of real politics and, and the real world. So there would be a huge respect to the imperial times, definitely in the Turkish society, but rejuvenation uh, or an empire and making foolish mistakes in doing so and, you know, turning a total blind eye to the 21st century arrangements, NATO architecture, the Euro-Atlantic, Transatlantic security commitments, and the, the requirements of today, the 21st century. Uh, I mean, like, you can only find, you can only find a sober, well-calculated, realpolitik approach. I'm going to end with, with one single example. Look at the very grief situation of the Finnish and Swedish NATO accession processes. And what Turkey did was immediately, you know, in a fast-track fashion, giving a green light to Finland, and Finland is a NATO member right now, taking it case by case, and on the Swedish case, negotiating according to the, the memorandum of understanding centered on, on, on the very clear subject of countering the terrorism threat, the, P, the, 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 the PKK terrorism, but terrorism at large. And when doing so, being one of the utmost contributors to the NATO operations. Don't I have any criticism to the contemporary Turkish foreign and security policy? Indeed, I published that. Even I published on the official news outlet of, of Turkey, for instance, Turkey, uh, Anadolu Agency, for instance, the, the S-400 procurement from the Russian Federation, the S-400 air and missile defense system procurement. On technical grounds, on political and diplomatic grounds, I criticize that, and that's all open on the on the website. Okay, as a think tanker, objectively, uh, so that still I can say openly on the record, the procurement of the S four hundred was a huge mistake. It was a huge mistake, and we are all seeing the per- combat performance of the S four hundred right now in the Russian combat operations, and even in the Turkish case, that would be standalone. Uh, but when it comes to your your core question or, you know, Russian example comparing it to Turkey about the imperial nostalgia, you wouldn't find even an iota of, uh, of the Putin Putin uh, regime's understanding, surreal understanding of the Soviet Union. You would never find something like that in Turkey as to the Ottoman heritage, no. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Kasapoglu. You've listened to Ukraine Calling, the English language podcast from Romansky Radio in Kiev. And our today's interview was Dr. Jan Kasapoglu, senior fellow at Hassan Institute and the director of the Security and Defense Research Program at the Turkish think tank Adam. Ukraine calling.